Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yo, check this out. This is Chuck D. And keep it locked. You are tuned into the library. The lives are buried. With Tim Inico. Right here, right now, rapstation.com. Yo, Chuck, what's the move, man? I was on my way up here to the studio, you know what I'm saying? And this brother stopped me and asked me, yo, what's up with that brother, Chucky D? He sway nice. I said, yo, the brother don't sway nice. He knows he's nice, you know what I'm saying? So, Chuck, I got a feeling you're turning into a public enemy, man. Now, remember that line you was kicking to me on the way out to L.A. Louds and Queens while we was in the car on our way to the shop? Well, yo, right now, kick the bass for them brothers and let them know what goes on. Rolling stones in the rap game, not bragging. Public Enemy frontman, rock and roll, Hall of Fame inductee, hip-hop legend, Roosevelt, Long Island's own Chuck D. Joins me today on the library on RapStation.com. Thanks for joining me, Chuck. Yo, what's up, Tim? And you are in Roosevelt, Long Island, so it's really great to be on the library and um, doing such an incredible, fine job. I want to start with what's obviously been in the news lately is been very vocal about your problems with the use of the n-word in rap uh some defenders of their of the, the use of the word point to the idea that it's used in the context of artistic expression even russell simmons said on hot 97 it's the voice of the youth and they're just kind of channeling what's the voice of the youth so i'm wondering are you do you want it to ban the word altogether or are you just or is there any sort of artistic expression that the word can be used Every word has its context. You can't ban a word. But once you start to say that in any kind of public forum, that the word all of a sudden becomes a one-word anthem for for a genre, a culture, and a people, and every other situation comparatively can't be said, there's an issue and there's a problem there. You know, behind the word, you have to figure out what council has endorsed and financed and branded this as marketing. And uh, and then if if a word is just a word and anything goes, then why are there other words that you cannot use? Um, to have an anti-gay slur uh, with the F word, you know, these same structures would come down on you. If you have an anti-Semitic word out there, you know, um, the Jewish community will really come down heavy on you. If you have people who are all working within these realms of society, why would they even allow the N word to go if they you know, don't allow these other words to go. So it's kind of like saying, well, here's a time and place for everything, time and place for every word. Um, what, but, you know, it's just the culture of the word brought into the mainstream by these artists and by the, oh, endorsed by these companies. 
um, is something disturbing about that. And I just, I just pretty much said when I talked about Hot 97's Summer Jam that it was a sloppy fiasco. I thought it was sloppy the way that they did not host a, a show that, that kind of like boosted hip-hop in a form that, that everybody could appreciate it from a balanced point of view. I want to talk about radio. Um, do you think, I mean, just with the internet, is that it's so easy to get music. I mean, you, you know, it's so easy to, you know, it, I like to say it's the program director's dream job now is that they don't have to travel. They just have to do Google searches online. Well, that's laziness. Right. I mean, I think the biggest problem I've had with rap music and hip-hop ever since the early 80s was the curation of it. I've always had issues with the way that the music was curated. That's why with your show, like the Combat Jack show I did the other day, um, when do, when does the rapper get the couch? You know, when does the rapper say something other than just spitting? You know, when do we hear something from the, the you know, the mind, body, and soul and the psyche of the MC or the songwriter or the DJ or the producer, which really kind of rounds out the art form? When do we hear that? When do we see that? Or does everything has to be like up in battle stage, you know, uh, or it's most coonery point of view or lowest hanging fruit. And I, and I, you know, I love rap music and hip hop. This is my entertainment. Um, it's just, it's gotta be entertaining to me, just like the NBA finals. It just can't be like a, a whole bunch of um, quick glam and glitter stuff. And, you know, we know we have aspects of that. It might even be a majority of the aspects, but I don't just think hip hop and rap's demographics you know, is 23 and under, and everything needs to be, you know, at that bar. Do you think, do we, frankly, do we need to care about commercial radio anymore to play the rap music that we want to be played? I mean, just because you have the internet, you have all these people able to download or buy whatever. Not all these people, you know, if you don't pay your, your internet service provider is in charge. You don't pay your ISP, you ain't getting internet. Nothing's like the free radio. The free radio, you could take a radio from 19... 49 put a battery in it or plug it up and you could get the radio station because it's the free air if the free air is going to make a claim that this is the 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 epitome the home of hip-hop if this is the where hip-hop lives then the community especially in new york where it all started 40 years should hold that signal accountable for what it claims to be and it should claim a balance of of not only representing the future, but the, also the present and the past equally from a building standpoint and curation-wise. And it also should be able to, to spread out the floor to independents. It should spread out the floor to locals. It should pay attention to some of the global, the classics, the women in hip-hop, the DJs. So what, what we do on Rap Station. So I, I just think that it's really important that a station group court plantation conglomerate where a person sitting you know in indiana doesn't have a final say so on what hip-hop should be in the birthplace of new york where everybody around the world looks to new york as the mecca and the birthplace and upholds to those fundamentals but new york doesn't so i i strike issue with that new orleans they wouldn't accept anybody coming from the outside trying to dictate the bar for jazz they wouldn't allow it for the blues in Memphis, and they don't allow it for the blues and electric blues in Chicago. So why would hip-hop be any different to even justify this outside point of view of dictating what it should be just for commerce's sake? It's on the free air. Citizens have a right to say what's predatory in their community, and that happens in the air too. 
as well as on the ground. And this is something I feel that, that it could drastically change. In Canada, they have a, a law that says that all Canadian playlists have to be 40% Canadian artists of the playlists. Well, in the United States, I feel that if radio wants to claim a genre, 33% at least should uphold local artists, independents. I mean, it's so twisted to the other side. You want to talk about Occupy, Wall Street. There's an Occupy Free Air movement that, that was trying to instill through freedartists.com that shows the st- statistics that 99% of all the music that's played by these radio stations um, that call themselves urban, and urban means knock out the accountability and responsibility from the black faces of the black community that this music is spawned, 99% are major label spins. 99% versus 1%. And the 1% of indie spins are three songs by Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, which is really not independent. It's backed by Atlantic. So what are you saying and what are you doing and what are you here for? I think a great thing about when I grew up and you know heard you, Public Enemy, Kumo D, uh, there was... And I all the rap like, there wasn't. I always didn't. Some of the rap music I gravitated to. Some of it was similar to today, where it's about the kind of glorification of violence. But there was a great diversity in the content of radio that I was hearing from the radio stations that played it. Because I remember times Z100 being. And I always say that Z100 was proud not to play rap music. They had they actually had a drop that said no rap music here or something like that. And now they play it all the time. Uh, so the big question is. Why won't why 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 isn't there diversity in the content? Especially when everyone I talk to, they don't listen to radio anymore because there's no diversity in the content. Well, I I don't think it's about who doesn't listen to radio. I think you know radio has the ability to capture millions at the same time. If a news situation came out where there was a catastrophe, people are going to turn on the radio or they're going to turn on the TV. They might flock to the internet if they have that, that, that device, of course, right away, but they're going to try to get the full story from a bigger medium. I think um, when the bigger medium tells the full story of rap music, it should be balanced. And, um, and that's where we're at right now. Um, it's a, it's a, a view that I feel very strongly about that, that we can make the change as curators and people that provide services in rap music and hip-hop. That's very important. The infrastructure has been lazy, really lazy. I mean, it's like people who want to be artists can be artists, but there's so few people that are equipped to be management agents, infrastructure areas like how to set up your label, what to do with your career, how to perform on stage, how to take care of your public relations, how to be able to work together and understand that you're one of five instead of, you know, five and one. I mean, you know, these things have to be taught to you. That's why I, you know, kind of respect the sports world because they really don't waste a lot of their time on on fluff and, and what looks like an impossibility just because people don't understand that there's a standard to be met. I was wondering, do you think what has happened to hip-hop and even rap music kind of has been inevitable in terms of like what happens to 70s rock musicians where it became more about the cult of the rock star and his lifestyle versus the rock and roll as in earlier? Well, you know, understand rock and roll always had some sort of infrastructure. So you have always had more people around the art than who were doing the art. 
So they took it and led it into different places, and it was wildly successful for so many people that in the 70s, they it was, success was almost like spit on the ground and, you know, boom, rock God, you know. And a lot of that was combined in the area area when drugs came in. So they made so much money that they all burnt themselves out from leading the music industry from a musical standpoint. The lawyers came in and had to fix the, fix it. The lawyers then assumed the record company president positions, and it's never changed. I mean, the average record contract is now 50-some-odd pages. Only lawyers could read it. It's a lawyer's game, and it smells like lawyers. It doesn't smell like music. So it was a beauty when musicians was running it, uh, and that was reflected in the rock world. Um, ever since rap music had gone into the realm of major record companies in the mainstream, it's still been under a lawyer's shadow. I mean, the lawyers represent the artists, and then they represent the company, and then the lawyers assume the record company position when the record company is looking for a, a, you know, a head. To me, that's just, it's so criminal because that's what governs, you know, hip hop and rap music from that standpoint, not the art, not the music. So when they let something go or predicate something with the N word, there's not enough uh, social and communities. Uh, connection or accountability to even give a damn and um, this has been harmful and one-sided and this is something I want to try to infuse into the culture of bringing more of the faces and the names and the skilled people into it from service areas it might be far-fetched but I I think it's uh, necessary and not too late so I asked Buckshock this as well but why why do people keep flocking to major labels if it seems like I mean that Buckshot told me about that 360 deal, that 360 contract, well, where it seems like people are constantly getting screwed over. Why do people continue to do the mainstream or the major label thing? Because it's the Wizard of Oz. It's like it's like it's the yellow brick road, and you know you're coming from Kansas in a you know in a tornado, and everything is just stark black and white. And then you know you've seen so many pictures that, that had it in Technicolor and, and riches and and all these other things and. It's a banking system, so people want to be able to figure out, yeah, this is where the thing is at, this is where the event is at, this is where the party is at. They say not to go, something might break loose, but it ain't going to break loose on me, so I just, I'm going to do it as opposed to not doing it, because where I'm sitting right now, I don't even understand it, and I don't understand how I can make it. And um, so that they're always going to dangle that. And my thing is that you're not going to stop that dangling from being attractive. But you have to make other areas attractive and also livable and doable. And those are some of the areas that, that we try to point at, um, how to build your own scenario, your independent digital label, how to look at the world of hip-hop as the world of hip-hop, not based on any region, how to make your region stronger and accountable, how you can actually do some things that are, are 360 yourself around your creativity that provides you the beginning to a professional career. These things are important. In sports, they do it. In music, they've it's been hollow and gutted and gutted out. So um, there's there's such a big difference. We're talking about maybe the demographic of the same young cat, the 16 year old who's seven feet, that that's looking at a college. Everybody's talking about him because of the infrastructure that discovered him when he was 11 years old, when he was six foot. Four, in the in the um, in the fifth or fourth grade. Well, there's a young guy who's writing great songs, could play a little instrument, could spit, 
You know, their only resolve is YouTube, which is a great beginning. But who's checking out, you know, 2,000 artists on YouTube? It should be like, yeah, well, there's a research team that has 500 people checking out 2,000 to 5,000 artists on YouTube thoroughly. And those that like, you know, get a call and maybe some, you know, mentorship. Um, There's been sort of like attempts like in the past, like with a direct artist and stuff like that, where people wanted to put together farm teams but it's, it's, it takes a large infrastructure of a lot of contributors. A lot of people feel that being in a service mode is taxing, weary, and, and a big waste of time, no glamour, and uh, it would just, like I said, take a lot out of a person. So that hasn't really been sold to, to people as much as the glamour of get on the star have Jay-Z collab on your record and, and you go to a gig, you know, via helicopter, <laughs> land right in the middle of, you know, 60,000 people. So that's easy to sell. I want to turn to kind of uh, musical influences and obviously musical influences has changed over time. Uh, I think you were the, one of the first people I've heard talk about the specials. And, but you, but you grew up at a time where like those were your influences, like the James Browns and the specials. And it, yeah, the specials came when I was grown when we, I grew up, I'm born in 1960, along with you know Keith in '62, Hank in '58, Flavor in '59, Griffin '60, probably you know. So we we're in that range. So we grew up in New York in the '60s and '70s, from zero to 15. So influences in this city was WABC, AM pop radio that played everything, well balanced, great jocks. I mean, the Beatles were broken on WABC and MP, MCA. They played James Brown and the Spinners as much as they played Steely Dan and, and, and Meat Loaf later on and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. So, you know, it was like top 40 radio, but really kind of like um, at a heyday of, of those particular uh, soul and rock records and ballads and power ballads. It was great radio. Then uh, we wanted to get into the all-black thing. WWRL was in the city. It was the soul station. And the DJs were great. And the music was great. And the beginnings of funk was there. So the DJs and radio was everything to us. And there's everything in the black community because the DJs connected and they talked to people. And it was just very, very real. So our influences are vast. I mean, I got, you know, I got four libraries of, of, of books. And I got every DVD known to man in popular music past 1950. So, I mean, I'm a musicologist along with my guy. So this is this is our World Series. This is our, you know, NBA playoffs, you know, studying and, and enjoying our music. Sly Stone, James Brown, Miriam McKeever, Nina Simone, Aretha Franklin, Ike and Tina Turner. I mean, I, it's really, it's not, it's not, it's not really, Who's on the list? On the list is who's not on the list is probably a better apropos question, because when you talk about us with musicologists, and that starts from DJ culture, and and the holy trinity, plus one or two from hip hop culture, is Africa Bambata, Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, DJ Hollywood, Eddie Chiba, you know Africa Bambata is considered the master of records. All this coming from records, and those are where your heroes are. Do, I mean, do you think, like, so today's rap artists, their influences are rappers. Um, right. Do you think that has been hurtful or helpful 
to the culture itself? I mean, do you think because 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 people aren't going back to the you know they're not a lot of rappers don't go back to the 1970s to listen to music then they listen to whatever Macklemore or you know Little Wayne or whoever's on the radio because that's so. Do you think overall the fact that rap music some rap music is pop music uh, this has overall helped the culture or has overall hurt the culture? Not knowing your history hurts hurts you. Period. And not knowing the history of something that you say you dig and do and love really will hurt you because you have to learn everything that existed in order to make something that, that has never happened yet or something that people would think is new, but you understand what it was to make brand new. You know, I mean, if you know what was, then you know to make some adaptations into something to an audience that's naive, then automatically, by default, you'll have something that's considered new. I think when Kanye West some years ago did um, had the Great Charles record, you know, and, hey, you know, it, it was something that was connecting to the past that people later found out, like, oh, that's Ray Charles. And then he had a movie with it. And then and then the, the song that he did, like with Jamie Foxx, was just, like, really pertinent and on point. And it was, like, a drawback, but also something pushing into the future. Public Enemies' debate, debut album, Yo Bum Rush the Show, came out in 1987. Your last album came the evil empire of everything came out in 2012 and you guys are obviously still touring. Did you figure that back in 1987 that you would still be around 27 years later doing this? Or was there a backup plan if PE failed? No, it wasn't a backup plan if it failed because we knew that it probably wouldn't fail with the sum of all our parts. And understand this, I was one of the first people who were heavily, heavily recruited Rick Rubin would call my house for almost a year and a half, call the same house, and I'm like, nah, I'm not, we cannot do on records. We wanted to do syndicated radio. We wanted to do what we're doing on Rap Station in 1984. And what people said, we're crazy, we're out of our mind, the genre's not going to last. And some of the guys that pulled me in, uh, two of the groups that are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Beastie Boys and Run DMC, swept me in into Def Jam along with Bill Stephanie and Andre Brown, Dr. Dre, who later was known for MTV Raps as well. And they dragged me into Def Jam, and so we knew Yo Bum Rush the show that we would have to do it from a sum of many parts, a posse, really one of the first posses that come in and um, bum rush the show. So, we, yeah, we knew that, that our things that we were shooting for, we wasn't shooting to be better than Run DMC. We wasn't shooting to be better than Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five. We were shooting for the respect and the legitimacy as much as the people gave the Rolling Stones. That's what we were shooting for. Not us, but but more like, you know, uh, all of us type of point of view. Uh, the 20th anniversary of uh, Music and Our Message is coming August 23rd. When released, it received negative reviews. Um, but the, that's even something you comment on in the intro, first track that you said, we're gonna receive negative reviews. Um, so looking back at that album, would you have changed it, anything about it to get more positive reviews, or are you just kind of happy with what you did? Oh, the, the, the thing about Public Enemy is that we've always relished in going the other way. We intentionally made something so it could get negative reviews. The only other weird, well, there's a bunch of weird people who called uh, our allies from our, from our time, our contemporaries, I should say, De La Soul. They all twisted and do, they would do some crazy like that, Prince Paul. 
along with uh, my guys, Paz, Mason, True Goy, and and Cool Keith and Ultra Magnet. It, you know, it was you know just totally like. I mean, even when we produced America's Most Wanted with Ice Cube. He had a record called F U Ice Cube. It's like, who makes a record just dissing themselves? But later on, that became like, sort of like a theme of Eminem. Right, right, right. You know? And um, our whole thing was like, when we made that particular record, we made a record intentionally, not something that somebody would love. We always tried to make, um, I'll put it, put it in quotes, hate music, meaning that we tried to make music that you would hate first, that would possibly see if it could find a, a road to take and consume you instead of you consume it. Something I noticed about uh, the, al- the the music album uh, that stood out to me is that you curse a lot in it. Um, and I realized from the P discography that you're very, very selective when you curse. Um, I think like He Got Game, you didn't curse at all. Your Bum Rush to Show, very limited, if any, cursing. Um, so when do you just, like, is that a conscious effort or is it, when do you decide and not to curse or to curse? I think it was the climate. So half of the cursing that was happening with, with my writing at that particular time was actually to draw some attention to something. And also we made a record so people wouldn't play it on the radio. <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> but, um, but I always tell artists many times, I say, when you, cursing is like, it's like chopping half your foot off right. if you want it to be heard. We were really didn't really okay. We may give it up. Give it up was a uh, was a song that everybody flocked to. Uh, one of the things with music and our message is it was the album that was caught between label changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this dis- distribution changes. Def Jam went from Sony into Polygram. They sold. Def Jam was in a hole with with Sony. We were in the black. We set out our record up through Sony, didn't set it up with Def Jam, with Polygram. We, 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 we never set our records up through Def Jam. But when we set our record up through Sony and Def Jam was going from Sony to Polygram, then we were kind of lost in the crack as far as promoting and, and marketing that particular record. So therefore, we released Give It Up in April and everybody went on it and we had no record in the stores <laughs> for two months. I mean, I, could, I couldn't be mad at any of the DJs. They, they, played, they played it as much as anything we ever had, but, you know, it's not going to be reflective. And then the album came out August 23rd when the album was supposed to come out in, at the end of May. So it was like it was like you know, and, and the only reason that happened, like I said, you it went Def Jam as a company went from Sony to Polygram and had to change everything. They had to change their sales staff. To, they had to change everything. The code, barcode numbers and and here we are. We have a record that's already played. So, but after a while, you know, you got people that ask around for the record. They can't find it. They can't get it. I mean, they're on to the next one. Warren G. <laughs> which which went you know through the roof you know because right. everything was set up on the polygram system with Warren G, right. and um, and it had the it had the just the exposure and the muscle that we said that we couldn't say that we didn't have we had it but it came through the Sony system with no record ah. so that was very unique about music and our message and um, but at the time it was the the strongest uh, international record um, for. Def Jam and, and, and whoever they strongest rap international record period. Why does it seem that 
international fans, it seems like there's a more of an appreciation for hip-hop artists overseas than there is here. Why is that the case? Like, why, why, why does it seem that international fans just flock to good music? Well, 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 Tim, you're a New Yorker. New York is big in our minds, but small. Right. The United States is smaller than you think. Right. There's L.A. and there's New York to the rest of the world. And, okay, you know, maybe they'll head not Chicago, maybe in some aspects, you know, some of the stuff in the South and Texas, but really it's L.A. and New York. That's it. And although we think, okay, you know, wow, you know, how come you just didn't do it here? Because it's L.A. and New York. And L.A. and New York, but there's London, there's Paris, there's every single country that you deal with, deal with two or, you know, one or two major cities just like the United States. Mm -hmm. It's just the fact that there's 55 cities in the United States. But really, if you had to say, well, there's a one, two, three, four, you got New York and L.A., and not too many people are counting Chicago, uh, especially culturally, I should say. They're not counting D.C. They're like, okay, you know, just say when you go to Brazil, it's Rio and Sao Paulo. But how are you counting Brasilia, which is the capital? Or when you talk about Australia, there's, you know, there's Sydney and Melbourne. But are you counting Perth? Are you counting, you know, Canberra, which is uh, the capital? This is that that's foreign to the average American. Oh, I should say USA or the USA or would know one or two cities. So when it comes down, why would somebody go overseas? Because the world is bigger than the country by far. And so they're going to many countries and many major cities as opposed to, you know, this, the third or fourth city inside of a country, which is the United States. So uh, trust me, you know, London, somebody's going to go to London. Is London is just as big, if not bigger then New York, culturally, because it goes across the world. And then, you know, you got Manchester, which ranks number two in the UK. And then you got, what? Then you got the other British Isles, which is like, you know, Glasgow, which is in Scotland, and Dublin, which is in Ireland. So, when obviously, when somebody goes somewhere else in the world, overseas means over seven seas. Right. <laughs> you know, but most people in the United States, and notice I didn't say America, because America, you have to talk about South, right. North, and Central America, but USA is, seem to dominate it so much that we don't even want to include Canada, <laughs> so, which is Toronto. When you talk about Toronto, uh, Canada, it's Toronto and Vancouver. And, you know, Montreal used to be up in that top two, but now it's Vancouver. So that pretty much explains it, and you don't hear that explanation when people say, oh, man, why go over there? Because we know all those other major areas around the world, which is a bigger place, they're going to pay attention to maybe the fundamentals of something mm -hmm. before they take it on. Oh, and the fundamentals of hip-hop, you know, come out of New York. Right. And and they started to merge out of L.A. because there was a, a film scene that had a recording industry on its hip. See, the recording industry did not just emerge on its own. The recording industry came as a second fiddle to the film industry. The recording industry in New York came as a bunch of, you know, top fiddles and second fiddles out of the theater district, you know, all that. So the films uh, were L.A., the theater was New York and television. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the record companies had something to build around. I mean, independently, you know, you had Detroit that said, we have to 
you know, Barry Gordy said, I got to build Motown because nobody <laughs> cares about me. I could go to Chicago and do a deal with Leonard Chess, but these were independents that built something from nothing. And that's why they're, they're, they're famed and glorious today, King Records in Cincinnati. But when you're talking about the scene, the major scene of marketing and promotion, um, these artists will continue to look elsewhere in the world because the world is simply bigger. I want to. You talk about touring a lot, and I, uh, I, I was wondering, has and you, has your writing process changed? Uh, you seem to travel a lot and mm-hmm. to touring, speaking engagement, etc. So for you, what's when is the best time for you to write, and what's your best writing environment? Well, the best time to write is whenever you can write. Make sure you always have a pen on you or some kind of apparatus or gadget. Because a title can come from anywhere. A title that popped up in my head, I don't know if it came through Twitter, which is a great resource for writing, I think. Uh, it's 140 characters. People sometimes do their best in short bursts. You can take two or three tweets and actually put it together. You might be able to take something that you were thinking and put it in a tweet, and it might truncate for you. It might be a great title. It might be a great punchline or whatever. So it's a great thing for especially MCs. Because they, they, they travel like 140 mile per hour fastballs if they're correct. But, um, you know, always always figure out how do you document and record the juxtaposition of words mm-hmm. that, that, that are kind of relevant to what you might be seeing and what you might be hearing in your presence. And, uh, and being able to capture that. And that's the beginning of the writing process for me. Titles. Titles to to me, like a picture could tell, you know, could be a, a thousand words. To me, a title can give you at least a hundred. Um, for example, uh, the other day, I don't know if it, if I, I don't even know if I read this or somebody came up with it, but it sparked me to come up with it, although I didn't finish reading it. So I don't know if the idea came from somewhere else or did it come from half me or half of myself, I should say. It's like, um, those who know, know who. So you got those, which is the letter that kind of introduces who know, know who. So it's like, it's like, wow, but it says it all. And the other day I came up with something that says, well, when somebody asks me like the redundant question, like what's the difference in hip, the state of hip hop now and back then? And I'm like, back then, like what, you know? Yeah. I said, well, one big problem when it went from indie to corp to local to corporation to mainstream, one thing that happened, we went from me from we to me. So I said, that's six characters, you know, W-E-T-O-M-E. Now, you can look at that and it could say a lot if you happen to be a little bit uh, clairvoyant or whatever, but or intrusive into the into the into the actual text that you see or characters that you see but it says a lot we went from we to me we went from groups to individuals we went from t- relying on each other and into something that we, maybe we relied on one person into a lawyer and what we wanted you know to feed us ego wise I mean yeah it says, so that's how the writing process starts for me but reading great writers from Bob Dylan to Bob Marley Bob Womack you know I mean Smokey Robinson I mean, a lot of things start out off as a spark of idea. Now, if you can actually tumble something from the spark of idea, you got something. One song from uh, the Ava Empire of Everything, 
I think I literally played like 20 times in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song Everything. Okay. Have you seen the video? Yeah. No, yeah, I showed it to everyone. And everyone thinks it's a... The video is amazing as well. Mm-hmm. I, just where did that idea come from? And, I mean, it just seems... I mean, just... It's perfect. I, I, I've been trying to figure out who you kind of remind me of sound of, but I like... It's kind of very gospel-y in a way. Um, great message. Just, yeah, where did it come from? Uh, the song, everything uh, came from being inspired by Otis Redding. Remember when all the Otis thing was going on with yeah. Kanye and... and uh, and Jay-Z, I just said, well, if you really want to capture the essence of, of Otis Redding um, in a different realm, here's a, here's a try. And I think, uh, I think it was a lover's, lover's Prayer, one of those Otis Redding songs where he just let out deep within what he thought. Right. And um, that was some of the initial ideas. Now, I can't do Otis Redding. I'm not a singer. But myself and Gary G. Wiz said, look, how can we actually take the essence of what he did and convey it into a rap song and then say something that means something without a lot of words? I mean, I think the battle for me at this point is what can I say and do that has I haven't done before that could stretch the envelope for the possibility of somebody else coming and just really nailing certain aspects you know, hearing your uh, interview with Farrell Munch, I mean, I mean, to me, he's he's a dude that is able to take a seed and grow it into a forest. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, we have some incredible, no big pun intended, wordsmiths today. I mean, there's some incredible MCs and rappers today. I like to see more groups. I think uh, what uh, the idea of Kendrick Lamar's and uh, uh, Black Hippie, I just thought it was a concept I would love to go support and buy before it even comes out. But, you know, the group collaborations are far and few. Maybe I'd like to see a return to that. For my, for my own entertainment pleasure, I want to hear a lot of different voices. And I think that might come in the realm of a lot of women MCs and, and females and, and, and hip-hop. I think that, that change might come in that realm instead of me waiting for the guys. So I like to be entertained. And when I'm going to make and record a record, I like to also do something that is not meant, is not really meant to thrill somebody right away. Everything was a collaboration by uh, Sheila Brody, who used to sing with George Clinton as the Brides of Franken, um, Funkenstein, I should say. And she's an artist on, on our record label roster. And then also the, the sax by the great Joe Albright, who I would run into in the airport. And then we say, let's do something. And, and boom. And then my man C-Doc, uh, who's our you know production manager, partner of his own film company, shot the video using everybody else's voices in it. Um, we felt that was kind of like like I don't know if Pharrell and those and his people ever saw everything, but immediately the record you know caught wildfire and um and and to me I think promotion and marketing for Public Enemy and things that we do we like to look at long tail, so we don't like to try to look like okay let's flood everybody with this video so everybody can see it on this day because we're marketing this and trying to get its coin. I think we can always market in bursts. Like, okay, by the way, here's here's everything. And and not use the word market or branded, which I don't like. But you know, like every every Christmas, you know, you start to hear the Christmas song by Nat King Cole. I think um digital marketing can actually work like that where it just kinda like 
organically oozes and, and, and morphs into the public and then falls back on its own and people organically pick it up one by one on, on discovery. And I think we sometimes we just have to take the, the thirst and, 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 and the rush out of it and just kind of enjoy the process too, which doesn't necessarily make everybody happy based on, on, on their wallet, or wallet conditions. They kind of like, yo, I did this, it cost me this, it got to work now. So, right. But that's how the old business worked. And that's why it really, it all collapsed because everybody kind of went into the mountain and kind of like, um, you know, like when they go into the mountain and they, then they gut it out of all its resources, right. you know, strip mining. That's kind of happened in the, in the music business. It was culturally strip mined. So you go into it and say, wow, can we really build anything? Is it, can we build anything off of this hill that was so once so plentiful and fruitful and everybody, yeah, it did bear fruit you know, on season, but people just found ways to try to, you know, get it all and the roots and everything off. So therefore, I don't know if it's even, you know, it's, it's almost like a useless hump now. They've done the same thing with the, with the record industry. Music industry is healthy. Record industry has gutted itself out and has to replenish. And it's replenishing, I think, is in the digital realm, which is a long tail. Do you have a, Top five favorite Public Enemy songs, oh, or no. you know, that's one of the reasons on Rap Station we have you know Enemy Radio, which plays all, and it's the only time I kind of like listen to Public Enemy songs. I mean, because I'm not like, hmm, let me like, let's let me let's put in, yeah. yeah, let's let me no no I listen to Enemy Radio because it's programmed and it and it sounds like something I could listen to and I'm familiar with. But I wouldn't necessarily sit down. I'm taking a long time. Let me put it. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. I do that maybe once every three years. And like I took a long drive and I heard it takes a nation of millions to hold us back for like the you know first time. And I was like, well, you know, this is a pretty good album. You know, so I mean, I usually listen to a Public Enemy album to death before it comes out. And once it comes out, I'm like, okay, I'm done with it. I'm on to the next one, you know. Um, but... I listen to Enemy Radio on Rap Station when I want to listen to Public Enemy songs. If I had to say one song typifies my 100% attitude at the particular time from deep inside is uh, a Welcome to the Terror Dome. Oh, nice. yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's things that, that are, you know, inseparable from, from, from me. It's like Bring the Noise, Don't Believe the Hype. You know, Harder Than You Think, which became our, our biggest record ever. Which is crazy to say, it, it, you know, harder you think became a bigger record, you know, as far as a single than Fight the Power. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy, right? And that's that's 2012 became a theme of, of the the Paralympic Games, and from that it just took on proportions that you wouldn't believe. It became like a world theme. Now that you know, and just in 2014, the Major League Baseball is using it. Now NFL has picked it up. It's crazy, man. It's been in four movies. The record is just like it's like it refuses to die. It's that's, like bringing noise. That's like a shot. I mean, that is that that's a surprise for you that, that well, we recorded the record in two thousand seven, and it was the themes. It was the major song released on how you sell soul to the soulless people that stole um, that sold their soul, and it did pretty well for what it was and what that album was. It was a theme, and and we used it. And we loved to play it in the show because it dealt with different nuances, a reminder with Flavor kind of repeats his his uh, Public Enemy number one. So it was our 20th year anniversary song. 
and a um a television producer picked it up as being the theme and it and played it like to death on channel four so here we are with our two records that signify public enemy a the fight the power being the theme and do the right thing just just like relentlessly relentlessly spike lee put it in the movie like <laughs> like you know 12 15 times and played it over i'm like who does that right. so that was weird. and and this television situation director put it in as the theme over in the uk endlessly relentlessly i mean it, it would play like you know dun, dun, dun. i mean it, it became as a matter of fact that the year 2012 and the 2013 when they played the songs and as they had fireworks exploded on new year's eve yeah, Harden, you think, was one of the main themes. It was crazy. It was surreal. Um, and, and London has always been our base. Right. Yeah. When do you know it's time for you to hang up the mic? When, when, when has, what, what has to happen for you in order for your music mission to be, I guess, officially completed? Well, my music mission is completed as far as, like, in 1992. I made it in my mind to not sell records again. I'm not selling a record. I don't, I'm, I'm like, I, I got to the point where, I, and I would be really seriously the record company's worst nightmare. I like, I make records. I'll be making records in perpetuity, man, to the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound strong and good regard, unless something happens to my voice and throat. That's my strongest attribute and I could add some sense to it. So I sound good. But, in 1992, around Greatest Misses, I just said, you know, it's stupid to ask somebody to go buy my record when they bought a record from me before. <laughs> it's a, you know what I'm saying? All right, I'm making new records, so why I got to keep going to the public? Like, try this one. I was like, it, it's totally got to be up to them. It can't be up to me. And then I made up in my mind, you know, after our 25th year, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I said, I, I just got to make sure my... My contribution to hip-hop is all service. Mm-hmm. We built Rap Station, and our thing is all about service. Your show is about service. Yeah, it's about getting people who work with us to make, be able to make um, them have a profession, to be able to feed their families better. But as for me concerned, I'll figure that out. But my thing is i got to provide service. And, and, and to be able to serve the classic artists like with Hip Hop Gods and, and what Flatline is doing. So when you got artists like OC or Elder Sensei or, or LA Sunshine being able to know that they got, you know, some kind of burn on what they say they got the couch or what the interviews that you're able to give people to give them a voice where it seems like no one would want to talk to them, even if they got something out that trickles through whatever wants to play them and support them. Women, it's got to be more than Nicki Minaj. Come on now. It's like, it's wow. It's like, all right, Latifah has a TV show. MC Light's always doing something. But, I mean, wow, you know, Jean Grey has a voice. Bahamad has a voice. You know, this Rhapsody can't be heard on Hot 97. There's a problem there. So women, classic, the DJs, uh, for, for making sure that hip-hop DJs could be just as lucrative for an event as, you know, EDM, which is a world that's in the stratosphere because they keep that world tight and together and structured great, you know? Global MCs. There's more MCs in hip-hop around the planet because they pay attention to the fundamentals. Right. They have different languages, but they still got flow, they got the beat, they entertain. One of, one of, I was in Paris recently, and, and 
you know, and this group called A Social Club. Four MC put on the most incredible performance in this spot. I was checking them out in, in, in Paris that I've ever that I've seen in a long time. And it was just four MCs. I didn't know a word they were saying. <laughs> I don't know French like that. And, but it was incredible. And um, and then we have Planet Earth, Planet Rap with Miko Kapanen and Miguel Beginney who do a fantastic job on curating all the different flows, dialects, languages, beats, and they try to put it in the form. And now they're twenty four hour station too. So providing state, you know, stations like you know She Radio, which is a twenty four hour, seven day a week station just for female MCs and DJs and producers and contributors. Those that's what that was that's what makes me salute and be happy, and uh, that's that's my service, and so the hanging up the mic means, you know, it's if I had to compare it to baseball, I want to be that DH, you know, if the, uh, he's DH and so he hits a couple of doubles, but I'm making songs to actually see if I could push envelopes to clear paths, you know, and. Um, and and I'm a rap fan. It's not like I'm going to go to the club and have some drinks and get it popping. So that's not my area of, of enjoyment. I don't really sit and, and watch the game anymore. I don't play poker or cards, you know. You know I, I have a great time with my, you know, my child, my adult children, my family and wife and everything. But, you know, my personal entertainment pleasure for me is checking out hip hop and rap music. I don't act in movies, although, you know, I'm I'm known as being in a cult film or anchor man on the cutting floor and all that. But I'm like, that's great. That's just not my scene and not my bag. This is my bag. This is my scene, and I dig it. Frontman to Public Enemy and hip hop rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee, legendary Chuck D. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me in the library with Tim Einikel today on RapStation.com. Tim, not only am I a big fan of yours now, but I've been a big fan since we go back to Air America. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you're able to bring a lot of that insight and bring it into the hip-hop world is my obligation to make this thing work. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Huh. 
living. Respect been given. How's your living? Now I can't protect. I paid off defect. Check the record and record. Inintentional wreck. Played off as a minaret. Made the call. Took the fall. Broke the laws. Not my fault that they fallen off. Known as fair square throughout my years. So I growl at the living foul. Black to the bone. My home is your home. But welcome to the Terradome. America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio 
and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.